Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, wa kafa, wassalatu wassalamu, ala, malla, nabiya, ba'ada, wa ba'ad. Alhamdulillah, the month moving from Safar to Rabi'a al-Awwal, of the Hijri calendar of 1437, which works out to December 2015, was an extremely crucial time. There are some four major events that we should really think about that I think will really capture our attention. Two of these events happened on the 2nd of December. One of them was the authorities arresting four Kosovar jihadist men, three in Italy and one in Kosovo. The second was the San Bernardino shooting incident, in which 14 people were killed and 22 injured. Right after this, we have, on the 7th of December, Donald Trump calls for banning Muslim immigration until further notice. And then the final point is for the 29th of December, and we hear the first popular use of the word affluenza. Now I want to start with the first of these four major incidents which is the, the 2nd of December, 2015. Authorities arrested four Kosovar jihadist men, three in Italy and one in Kosovo. Now these people were arrested as jihadists, and they've been painted with this brush of being jihadist. Since the 11th of September 2001, anyone that has had anything to do with resistance movements throughout the world, movements against colonialism, they have been lumped in the same category as people who necessarily are criminals or who rightfully deserve to be convicted of atrocities. Because after the 11th of September 2001, any resistance movement where Muslims were concerned was labeled originally as either Al-Qaeda, then it became insurgents, then Islamists or Islamofascists, then jihadists, and now they say that you are part of ISIS or Daesh. Now what this has done, what effect this has had is Muslims who are minorities or in majority Muslim countries who have valid grievances are now all being painted with the same brush, the same 11th of September 2001 brush, they're all being painted with this brush. And the problem with this is it completely does not distinguish between Muslims who are rightly 
standing up and demanding their rights, it doesn't distinguish between those Muslims and Muslims who might be transgressing and violating the revealed law. Muslims who rightly might be fighting for the sake of a valid cause because they're being killed or invaded or colonized versus Muslims who are using these causes as a reason to commit violence on others without right. No distinction is being made. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you five such cases. And I think this will help us to understand what's going on. One is the Palestinian resistance. People after the 11th of September 2001 started lumping the Palestinians in, especially the Netanyahu government. They started saying, and Israeli governments uh, that would help him after this point, they started saying that the situation that they were looking at is that the Palestinians are the exact same type of threat as that which was unveiled upon the United States on the 11th of September 2001. Now let's look at this. The Palestinians that are resisting, are do they have a goal of transforming the entire world into a structured state in the same capacity as Al-Qaeda or later Daesh? No. Their goals are very simple that they desire, some of them, either a return to the 1948 or 1967 borders or some type of complete withdrawal. Because the Palestinian liberation movements that are out there, whether they are Christian or Muslim, all have Palestine in their name because it was a strip of land that was taken. And because that strip of land was taken from them and they were pushed off into reservation or concentration camp type circumstances they therefore want those grievances redressed so they have nothing in common with al-qaeda on that level they're not insurgents they're not insurgents because they're not a guerrilla group it's their country they can't be a guerrilla force when it's their country. What enemy has flown them in? They're not from Jordan. They're not from Egypt. They're not from Lebanon. They're not from Syria. They are the people that are from that country. And they are fighting against a mobilized, well-trained, sophisticated enemy that did actually invade. If someone's last name is Putsky or Polanski or Warshawski, they are not from a Middle Eastern people. Are they Islamists? Well, that depends on the type of language that's being used. Islamists could mean that the groups there that are Muslim, because we need to remember that 52% of Palestinians are Christian. They are Orthodox Christian. Now, those that are Muslim, uh, there are there is an Islamic bent to some of them. But some of them that are fighting as resistance groups are fighting on behalf of the Palestinian cause and they happen to be Muslim. So they're not using that necessarily as a cause. And they're not looking to establish uh, some type of overarching world government, an overarching world Palestinian government. That's not what they're seeking. 
So it's a complete conflation to sort of draw this sort of draw this parallel between Palestinian organizations and then say, well, this is just the same thing as Daesh, which they're completely unrelated. The next is, are they jihadist? Well, no, because if you'll notice, the you've not heard of anyone from Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. You've not heard of anyone from Black September. You've not heard from anyone from Hamas or Majma' al-Islami. Al you've not heard of any of them invading Paris, invading New York, invading Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles. Why? Because their sole purpose and goal of why they were created was to recover the Palestinian territories. So they don't have an idea of sort of exporting some type of global combat. Their, their issues have all been based, if you look at the history of the PLO, if you look at the history of Al-Fatah, if you look at the history of Hamas and these organizations, what do we all see they have the same thing in common? They're all based in Palestinian territories, the West Bank or Gaza. Why? Because that's what the central issue is. And are they as ISIS or Daesh? Can we say the Palestinian resistance groups are like ISIS or Daesh? No. Because ISIS and Daesh attempted to get a foothold in Gaza, as well as the West Bank. And what's going on? There is an active fight between both groups. Why? Because the Palestinian resistance sees itself as something regional. And they want nothing to do with things that are going to actually pollute and muddy those waters. Daesh or ISIS is a different issue altogether. So we have to stop conflating between what's happening between Palestinians and Israelis and somehow linking this with Daesh. It's complete foolishness. Let us now look at the Chechen resistance. This is a second example. Now the Chechens, are they like Al-Qaeda? No, because the Chechens have not demanded for other governments to submit to them or that they're looking to set up a Chechen Sultana throughout the world until the whole world is governed under one Chechen state. They've not done this. Are they insurgents? Well, no, they're not insurgents because, again, they were invaded by the Russian Empire for hundreds of years. And they never wanted to culturally identify as Russians. There was a time where they were taxed for having beards and for wearing distinctive Islamic headdress. And they still fought through those taxes and fought against them. Joseph Stalin in his selected works, you can see in the index in the back, has a lot of disparaging words regarding Chechens when they refused his calls to come to the new truth of communism. Are they Islamists? Well, no, not really, for the most part. Now, there are some of them who are cultists, but they are certainly not Islamists in the sense that they have some worldwide goal. They don't have that type of thinking because they are fighting for the Chechen resistance. They're not jihadists because, again, they're not exporting things. They're not ISIS or Daesh. All of their targets have been Russian targets. You have found them. Uh, on Russian soil, fighting against Russian people. You've not found Chechens as, uh, identifying with the Chechen resistance 
um, on the way to bombing a nightclub in Los Angeles. They've not done this. So the Chechen resistance is not connected to Daesh or Al-Qaeda. It's not connected. Then we have to look at the moral resistance in the Philippines. The Muslims in the Philippines have been fighting since the Portuguese arrived because the Portuguese killed a large number of Muslims who had come over as traitors and because of missionary work had converted the vast majority of the Philippine Islands to Islam. When the people from Holland had come and the Portuguese had come and the Spanish had come they started by killing Muslims and eventually the island was converted into a majority Roman Catholic structure. So the arguments that are going on between the Moro resistance and the Roman Catholic majority government go back two to three hundred years. Even the name of these islands, Philippines, is named after some sort of Catholic monarch. So it's nothing to do with anything to do with Al-Qaeda. The Moro resistance can't be found in the streets of Boston or Chicago. They've not said to go out and conquer for the Moro rebellion. They've not said that. Their goals are basic, they're local, and that being oppressed as Muslims, they want their grievances redressed. The next is the Rohingya resistance that is starting to happen in Burma and Myanmar. Now, originally what happened is the Rohingya were stepping stones. They were easy to kill, they were easy to find, they were easy to get after, and people had a great time killing them and oppressing them. But then when they started to offer armed resistance, now they're Al-Qaeda. Well, the Rohingya are primarily artisans. They're primarily artisans, people that work in... Uh, people that work as skilled uh, and in skilled trades and things such as this they're not they're not born warriors but they were put in that situation so they're not al-qaeda because they don't have those type of goals they're not insurgents they're not islamists they're not jihadists and they're not isis or daesh their goals are local then we have afghanistan and the non-Taliban, non-Al-Qaeda factions and non-Northern Alliance factions. The fighting in Afghanistan, we have to understand, Afghanistan is one of the few groups of people that has not invaded or colonized other people around it or involved other people in a slave trade. It's one of the few people that has not done this. The issues in Afghanistan are 300 years old. Now Afghanistan is being currently used as a battlefield and testing ground by the United States, which recently over the radio in an address on Radio 4 News by Barack Obama, they admitted defeat in Afghanistan and that they would have to pull out. Before then, they were invaded by England in two disastrous wars. Now, we haven't, we've never heard the statistics in English on how many Afghani people died. We only hear about how many great British soldiers died. But the number of Afghani people that died was tremendous. It was tremendous. Russia's invasion 
Russia invaded in the 70s, but also invaded in the 1700s two to three times. And the Afghani people had to fight them. So they've had to deal with the Russian Empire, whether it's in its Soviet form or before the Soviet period. They've had to deal with the Russians. Then we have the Tatars, which includes Genghis Khan and the Mongols. They invaded. So the situation in Afghanistan has been like this for 300 years, at the very least. These constant invasions. Because Afghanistan is a gateway to both Southeast Asia and South Asia proper. It's a gateway. So they are often invaded. So these people, they're not Al-Qaeda. Because you don't find, again, Afghanis saying to go out on behalf of Afghanistan. and do, they, they don't say that. They're not insurgents. They're fighting on their own home turf, which was invaded by larger, more technically equipped enemies. They're not Islamists. They are Muslim. But they're not invading their neighbors because they are considered, if not the poorest country, the second poorest country on the planet. They're not jihadists because they're not exporting anything and they're not like ISIS or Daesh in fact they're fighting against Daesh and they're fighting very valiantly so this is what's going on currently these groups these valid resistance groups have nothing to do with Daesh or Al-Qaeda or being insurgents or jihadists and we have to modify our attitude as Muslims to not allow what's going on in the news to shape our thinking because it's a wrong way to look at things. We have to understand that what's happening are these people taking the ayat and the Qur'an where Allah said permission has been granted to those who are being oppressed to fight back and defend themselves. Permission's actually been given to the Muslims to defend themselves in circumstances where they might otherwise be completely wiped out or suffer oppression that could lead them away from the faith. So they have every right to defend themselves and they are completely different to what's going on with Daesh and we have to recognize that fact and people who aren't Muslim as well we have an obligation to make sure they understand that as well because them they've only seen Muslims on television and they see rockets flaring and Muslims fighting and they don't understand some of the the, the more nuanced dynamics that not every Muslim that's fighting is necessarily in the wrong now, whether they accept that or not when you tell them is a different issue, but the point is, is you have to try to get that point across to them because it is a reality. I mean, a really good book on this topic, especially for the Afghanistan situation, is the, is the book. It's called Between Marx and Muhammad, and it just shows how Afghanistan has been ravaged and how Central Asia is coming out of the communist deep freeze that the Soviet bloc imposed on it is now re finding its Islamic self and everyone is acting as if they're terrified when they were the ones that invaded Kazakhstan never invaded the Soviet Empire but the Soviet Empire invaded them and took them over now the second thing on that occurred on the 2nd of December 2015 was a series of shootings but we'll focus on one and the most severe was the San Bernardino shooters. Now, 14 people were killed 
and 22 were injured. When Saeed Farooq, 28, and his wife, Tashfeen Malik, 29, opened fire. Opened fire. Some 76 rifle rounds were fired by the perpetrators. They wound up being killed, but only after 380 rounds were emptied from the guns of 23 officers. Saeed Farouk and Tashfeen Malik left behind their daughter, orphaned, and with unanswered questions. Saeed Farouk attended a local masjid, the Dar-Ulum al-Islamiyah, which is a Deobund affiliate on the west coast of the United States. Tashfeen Malik had attended the Dar al-Huda, Deobund stroke Ahli Hadith institution, which was founded by Fatma Hashmi, who had had problems in the past with authorities as well as people in her own country of Pakistan because of her Deobund uh, Ahli Hadith uh, opinions. Now the masjid that they were at was extremely unhelpful and I advise you to try to look up the Breitbart article on the San Bernardino shooting because when they went to that masjid to speak with them about Sayyid Farooq, there were many questions they refused to answer. And they also refused to answer a question regarding whether any of them in the past had been questioned about their leanings, their religious leanings by authorities. And they refused to acknowledge that question. Now, this needs to be something for the future that the Deoband and Ahli Hadith need to reform not just the, their theology, but they need to reform their thinking. For too long, these two groups have been going about their business and teaching this eclectic form of religion that they had without being challenged. And this just cannot continue anymore because the type of people that it's producing are people that are dangerous and are harmful, not just to people who aren't Muslim as well and them being killed, but also harmful to their co-religionists. Neither of these people thought about the fact that they're leaving their daughter behind as an orphan and that they're going to go into the street and kill 14 people and injure 22 who probably have as much to do with the current political structure in the world as any one of us have to do with the current state of affairs of the L.A. Dodgers. Completely unrelated. But what's happened is the type of 
people that are produced by these two organizations, the Deoband and Ahli Hadith, are not taught critical thinking. And it shows. Because these organizations, if you look back at the heads of these organizations, they came out of the same type of jagged, fanatical thinking. And they produce the same type of people. Now that the spotlight's on them, well, they're backpedaling. And they're moving backwards and they're saying, no, it's not us. Islam means peace. Let's do an open house now. And we'll allow people into the masjid, but we'll tell the females they have to sit on one side and the men on the other, even though they're not Muslim. We tried to get the ladies to wear hijab in the masjid, but then we told them, even though there's no text for it, we tried, I mean, just things that make no sense when you're trying to explain yourselves to a news outlet that is not Muslim. It is, as if, it is as if these two groups do not understand that the entirety of the world outside of them is not Muslim. Those people that are not Muslim do not believe in the hijab. They don't believe because they don't believe that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. They don't believe that. So you have to understand that they're not going to act in the way that you would ex you would expect a Muslim to act. So you have to understand and accommodate this. And that attitude then goes forward with how these people deal with kufar. Unbelievers. They move into a masjid. They move into an area. They build a masjid. Why weren't there any open houses before? Why weren't there any of these things before? Why weren't there any food drives or clothing drives? These other things for people who are not Muslim. Why is it that the people in San Bernardino and Riverside and all the adjoining neighborhoods, why is it that this is the first time they're being introduced to the community on television, on the internet, on YouTube? And they're in a defensive posture. How do you not know who's in your congregation? No, the fact of the matter is they knew who's in their congregation because some of the congregants that they interviewed still, still have abhorrent opinions. So it's not that these are a couple of apples from the bunch. No, these are a few apples that fell off the tree, but they're still the same fruit. Now, Dale Bund is going to have to change, and so is Ahli Hadith. If they do not change, they're going to be rooted out, either by Allah directly or indirectly, through means in which Allah may send other slaves of Allah to dispense with them. Because this just has to change. And we as Muslims have to change in terms of our understanding of religion. We have to stop with this fast food religion of Islam. It has to stop. Our religion has to be far deeper than this. Just as when the Prophet ﷺ said in the collection of Imam Suyuti, Islam, al-Islamu, al-Sabru wa-Samaha, Islam is patience and magnanimity. So it's the patience and being magnanimous. That means encompassing. So those that are outside of you, that aren't Muslim, feel welcome, even though they're not Muslim. 
they feel welcome and those that are close to you feel welcome and they experience your justice not your oppression we have to change this type of thinking because if we do not then Allah's punishment is not far away now on the back of this on the 7th of December 2015 Donald Trump called for all Muslim immigration to be stopped until further notice why well I would say because Americans are not able to understand the amount of shootings that have happened in the United States they're not able to understand why these people can't be reined in why Muslims are not policing their own so they're calling for a ban now that ban is going to be all-encompassing and what that's going to do is it's going to restrict Muslims as a whole now if you are a Muslim that is a businessman that might want to travel back and forth to the US that could be stopped if you're a Muslim that's looking to immigrate to to live with the rest of your family that might be based in the United States on a permanent basis that might be stopped I mean I can say myself having traveled back and forth to the United States before and after the 11th of September 2001 how severe the controls security tightening controls are they're severe when I fly now if I've ever had to go over there I've always had an orange folder an orange three-ring binder and inside of it is my entire flight itinerary with the relevant parts highlighted because it's going to make my life easier and it will show them that I've got nothing to hide now you might say well we shouldn't have to do that yes there's a lot of things we shouldn't have to do but the reality is is because of the actions of others we've been put in a situation where we've been forced to have to do these things that's the unfortunate part about it it goes back to an incident we have in the Sira where after signing the treaty of Al Hudaybiyah Abu, Bas Abu Basir one of the companions he started a very strong insurrection in Mecca where he was being held prisoner by the Quraysh and he killed some of them and he came to the Prophet وسلم, and told him do not worry messenger of Allah you you owe me nothing with regards to protection I did it of my own accord and he said you nearly started a war where the treaty could have been broken and Abu al-Basir was sent back to them now these events today and those are not the same but the point that I'm making is how one Muslim can cause a massive ripple a massive negative ripple that the rest of the Muslims have to clean up and fix because Abu al-Basir's mistake did have to be cleaned up by the Prophet and the rest of the Muslims and it's the same thing with this we will suffer the same situation for what other slaves of Allah are doing and it's going to increase so Muslims who may not have anything to do with what happened Muslims who may have an entirely different set of circumstances that they are under are now suffering in the same way that slaves of Allah 
that are witnessing on the television or on radio or, or online the rape and the unrest that is occurring upon the arrival of migrants from the Middle East to Europe. These people would identify themselves as Muslim, and because of that, anyone who is Muslim is also suffering the same fate. They're being painted with the same brush, just like in the example I gave before in resistance movements. The only way to change this type of dynamic is to have a very articulate and focused dialogue and to also have information in the forms of multi in the form of multimedia information whether recorded videotaped online drives written data books the only way to counteract this is to counteract it in the same way that it's coming forward which is through all the means of multimedia you have to do the same thing. Now, on the 29th of December, 2015, there was a young man by the name of Ethan Couch. He violated his probation and killed four people while driving under the influence of alcohol in Texas and wound up being taken into custody in Mexico. Now, in court, the Texas State District Judge, by the name of Gene Bird, he sentenced Couch to 10 years probation for four killings and injuring 11. Now, think about this for a second. If Couch had been Mexican, he ran over four people and injured 11. Would he have been given 10 years probation? This means that he's not going to go to jail. He's put back on probation for 10 years, so if he, if he commits any crime, he can be sent back to court. might have a rougher penalty handed down to him. This situation with Ethan Couch, just for a moment before I go with the rest of the story, illustrates the severity of racism that's in the United States. If an Arab had killed someone, if an Arab had killed 10 people and injured 12 or what have you, he would not get 10 years of probation. But I want you to listen to the excuse. I want you to listen to the reason why Ethan Couch was spared a lengthy prison sentence which he so richly deserved. And here's what it is. Ethan Couch's attorneys stated that Couch suffered from a condition known as affluenza in which he was unable to understand the consequences of his actions on account of his financial privilege. In other words, being affluent. So they stated that he suffered from affluenza. So because he was so wealthy, he came from such a privileged background, he does not live in the same world as his population that lives around him. 
So he should be given greater consideration because of his condition of affluenza. Now, surely an argument could be made for someone living in Harlem in which the life expectancy in Harlem is less than in Bangladesh. Surely an argument could be made for uh, povertism, where he is so poor, he resorted to selling drugs and criminality in order to do whatever was possible to try to emerge from the ghettos in Harlem. So therefore he should be given 10 years probation and put on an apprenticeship program for carpentry. No, unfortunately that does not happen. Now I have two things to say about Ethan Couch and one of them might, the second might surprise you. The first is, again, the situation of racism in the United States that the judge and his attorneys, Ethan Couch's attorneys, and those in the press could not recognize that this man needed to be in prison. Someone who killed four people under the influence of alcohol while driving. This is vehicular homicide. Even if it's lowered to manslaughter, you still need to do time. And he injured other people as well. He injured some 11 people. But he was given 10 years probation for killing four and injuring 11 in a car that is two tons in weight. The fact that the fact that the legal system failed to understand that this was a dangerous criminal that needed to go behind bars indicates what type of country the United States is. The second thing is, is part of me actually agrees with the ruling handed down. Wealthy people in the United States, wealthy white people, and by white I mean the American white man, which this term of white came to be popularized and used in the book you can research called The Invention of the White Race. In volume 2 it explains how the term white came to be used as a class distinction and wealth distinction as well as race. So it's an actual legal term. The American white man, to some extent, really does suffer from affluenza. Because if you read the book, The Invention of the White Race, and you read the Willie Lynch letter, whether the Willie Lynch letter is a forgery or not, the fact that someone sat down to write that, if you read about the Tuskegee experiment, if you read A Little Matter of Genocide by Ward Churchill, if you read the Comanches, the most definitive biography on the Comanche nation, if you read these texts, to understand 
about the history of the American white man, you can understand the description of affluenza probably does fit. Because they are unable to understand the consequences of their actions on account of their own privilege. Thus, people in the United States, in the military that were in Iraq, in many instances were unable to understand the rage that Iraqis felt towards America and saying in the same breath, we're here to help these towel heads. Why can't they understand? Not realizing that depleted uranium was used in 1990 and that the country was split. Its airspace was divided into three places where you couldn't fly anything. There were certain curfews you couldn't use. Electricity was taken away. All this from 1990 up until now. And the condition of Iraq is still virtually the same. The fact that they cannot empathize and understand why the Iraqi people are so angry may be an indicator of affluenza. The fact that they are unable to understand why the Lakota nation in the United States the largest of the nations and the only one that's been able to hold on to a sizable chunk of its land. If you get an opportunity, I would advise you to read the book Bury Me at Wounded Knee. The Lakota nation has been able to survive off of its wits and off of its courage and bravery, but that the United States could not understand why they feel the way that they do could be an indication of affluenza. The fact that in 1945 the United States could take all the Japanese people that it could find and put them in concentration camps for the duration of World War II, even Japanese people that had been born and raised in the United States, some of whom didn't even know Japanese, the fact that they could put them in those concentration camps without even thinking about the wider consequences and without even accepting them as fellow citizens could be an indication of affluenza. It certainly could be. Now this situation of affluenza is probably true. It is probably a real disease and is probably a real calamity. But here's something else. The fact of it being a disease does not absolve or excuse the sufferer from being a responsible human being. Someone might be an alcoholic, but if you step behind the, car, the wheel of a car and you drive and plow into someone on the street walking home from school or from work on the way to the library, you deserve, you do indeed deserve to go to court and to be sentenced to a healthy period of time in jail. Affluenza is the same type of disease. Affluenza does not 
lift the pin from the head of the doer or sufferer. It does not absolve them or excuse them of reprehensible and despicable behavior. Surely they should receive some type of counseling, but they should also be penalized. What of the world if we were to take this attitude? Then do we then absolve the colonial exploits that have happened that are now happening again in the continent of Africa? The underhanded economic tactics being used against China and Southeast Asia? The brutal treatment of the Germans after World War I and World War II, the First World War in which they were made to foot the bill for the entire war, although, in many instances, they didn't start it. World War II, which was really a lead-on from the First World War, because the German people felt that they had to get revenge. Yes, a lot of this is affluenza. And this is not the first time this term has been used. It was used in 1954. And I would advise you to read up on this topic of affluenza because there may be some truth in this matter. But I do not believe that affluenza should be used as an excuse to absolve perpetrators from their crimes. Rather, it should be used as an exercise in indicating a cautionary tale. of what can happen when someone becomes so wealthy, so privileged, that they actually become remote from the people around them. No longer do they see themselves as equal members of the human race, but as the better model and those under, under them to be facilitators in their fortune, to be pieces on their playing board, and when necessary, they will experiment on them. They will use chemtrails. They will use technologies that might normally poison people. They will feed them the worst of their food while eating the best themselves. They will subject them to radiation, nuclear testing, chemtrails, pollution in their water, dumping aluminum in rivers. They will expose them to all the other things that they are free from. Many of the people that we could call sufferers of affluenza eat food from greenhouses. Their fruit and vegetables come from greenhouses that they have on their property. Their bread that they eat every morning are from ovens that they have in their homes. They don't eat bread from normal stores. So we do need to give a consideration to this topic of affluenza. The books I've recommended, I think, will be very useful. And I think that you can take a look at them of understanding the condition of the American white man and the reality that affluenza probably does have some truth to it. And I would say is probably more dangerous than modern alcoholism. In summing all of this up, I think we can bring this down to five points. One is that we as Muslims have to understand that we are not to blame for everything. 
in spite of whatever is in the news media, and that sometimes there are Muslims who are fighting for valid reasons, and they are justified in the fight that they are engaged in, and that they should be prayed for and assisted in that, and that if they cannot speak with their voice, we should speak and mention what is justified about what they are doing. Number two, that there are certain criminal elements among the Muslims, and these criminal elements fester and grow because there are organizations among the Muslims that are themselves decrepit and abysmal failures, and they have to be rooted out and changed, or they have to be dissolved, because we are not in a situation where we can tolerate this any longer. Number three. If we will not take care of these matters, unbelievers will resort to their own drastic and sometimes extreme measures to redress these imbalances. We cannot complain about what they're going to do if we are unwilling to take our own responsibility. Number four. Those who are wealthy do indeed have a problem relating to those who are not wealthy because they often live in high lofty places on hills while those under them live low and they know that and they feel that because they live under them that they are under them and that is a sickness number five that sickness comes directly from a hadith of the Prophet وسلم, in which he said The man seeking after wealth and status is more dangerous than two hungry wolves let loose on a flock of sheep. That hadith that is in the Jamia of Imam Suyuti's collection indicates that someone who seeks after wealth and or status is more dangerous than two wolves set free among flock of sheep. So craving for wealth and or status can sicken one. And affluenza is sort of a takeoff on the word influenza, which is the flu. Affluenza is sort of an equal sickness to that. And so the people that might take off and go in that direction, that might suffer from affluenza, seeking after wealth and status, self-aggrandizement, self-glorification, those people are indeed in danger. And the only way for us to make sure that we stay clear of that, no matter how much money that we have, is to constantly remind ourselves that these matters are ephemeral, they are temporary, they are not permanent and that what we have has been facilitated for us by Allah. And to always be thankful and prayerful, and look at those above us and remember those below us, and assist them, is my sincere supplication and hope, as I advise myself and I advise you, that we take heed from these words, and I say, أَقُولَ قَوْلِ هَذَا أَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهِ لِي وَلَكُمْ أَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُرُّ رَحِيمٌ حَمِيمٌ ولا يداها إلا الله